This morning I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5, if you brought a Bible, please turn there with me. We're going to look at Acts chapter 5, verses 12 through 42. Good passage this morning. And uh, if you didn't bring a Bible, there are some paperback Bibles near you. And uh, we would love it if you would uh, grab that and uh, turn there with us. Uh, This morning's passage is a continuation in our sermon series uh, entitled Witnesses. Uh, This passage continues in the midst of the ongoing advance of the, of the gospel and the expansion of the church. Uh, we've already seen the disciples being equipped by the Holy Spirit in the chapters that have been leading up to chapter 5. We've seen them equipped by the Holy Spirit. We've seen them boldly declaring the gospel in the streets. We've seen the community of the church gathered together in devotion to the Lord and in fellowship with one another. We've seen miracles that remind us of the power of God to forgive sins. And I was reminded this morning that we saw the miracle of God's divine judgment to remind us that we are holy. We've also seen the beginnings of Jerusalem's rejection of the gospel when the rulers and the elders and the scribes, they gathered together and they told the apostles, they charged them not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. But the believers, they quickly respond. And this is how they pray in chapter 4, near the end of that chapter. They say, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. So it's this boldness to bold witness and proclamation of the gospel that becomes a theme throughout the remainder of the book of Acts. But today, I want us to see that their boldness is not just a brashness. It's not just a rebellious radicalism in the face of authority. It isn't boldness born of youthful zeal or a naive desire to to just want to be a part of something big. So much of our boldness today is merely those simple fleeting things. Their boldness is compelled by two things. It's compelled by the fact that they have been sent by God so they cannot but obey God. This is a people who have been sent. Secondly, the compelling reality of the gospel they proclaim is burning in their own chests so they cannot but bear witness. This is what compels a people who have been sent by God and have the gospel in them, at work in them. I want you to consider just briefly before we read the passage an illustration of burning zeal. There are some movements in history, you might be able to think of a few movements that burn hot for a short time. It's like a fire that burns quickly and then because its fuel source is little more than kindling, little more than fragments of newspaper and maybe some dried leaves, that it burns quickly, it quickly ignites, but it burns through its fuel source quickly as well, and it produces little of genuine heat, little of anything that is actually of lasting value. And then there are movements that simmer, right? Movements that simmer and burn slow. They're often under the surface for a season until suddenly they burst forth 
in a flame and heat that simply cannot be contained. I thought of this a lot when I was in Mongolia and I'd wake up at, you know, midnight, one in the morning, and it's frigid cold in the tent that we're staying in, in the coldest capital city on the planet. And I, I go over and I'm, I'm trying to, to light the fire and I'm using newspaper and I'm using little twigs and so on. But what I didn't realize is just underneath of the ash was coal, burning hot coal underneath of the ash. And it wasn't until a couple days in and a couple sleepless nights that I realized I just needed to brush away a bit of the ash and lay a substantial piece of wood on top of it. And that simmering, burning coal would eventually catch that log on fire. And I could sleep finally for a few hours of heat. It's like a forest fire that begins with hot coals smoldering in the corner of a forest because the coals are lasting heat they're sufficient to throw out sparks into the surrounding brush that surrounding brush then ignites more substantial fuel and when the fire bursts forth from that corner of the forest there's no stopping it why because the fire itself is substantial and abundant friends that's the nature of the gospel and its spread that Jesus sets his disciples to a smoldering burn for three years. But it's when Christ burst forth from the grave that the sparks begin to fly, don't they? And then when the Holy Spirit's wind blows through the church, the apostles' proclamation of the death and resurrection of Jesus moves out into the streets, and there's an abundant, substantial fuel that sets the world on fire. So the church is not fueled by your or my enthusiasm. The church will not be fueled by any charismatic leader's gift to drum something up. The church is not fueled by a band's ability to use God's gift of music to get a people excited. Friends, it's just newspaper, it's just kindling. And it might burn for a little while, but there's no real heat in it. The fuel for the ongoing mission of the church is the fact that we have been sent by God Himself and we have an abundant and substantial reality in the gospel that we proclaim. Do you hear that? We have been sent and we have the substantial and abundant reality in the gospel. Let's see that as it plays itself out in our passage this morning. Acts Chapter 5, we'll begin reading at verse 12 and read through the end of the chapter. So please follow along with me. I don't want you to get lost in the many words. There's an incredible story that is being told here. Let's lean in and listen. Verse 12. Not many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both women and men. So they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least a shadow might fall on them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed." But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, 
that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now, when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. Love this. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison, so they returned and reported. We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at their doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, not by force, and they were afraid of being, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in the name. Yet here you filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at the right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. So is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined them. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas, the Galilean, rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan is, or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found to be opposing God. So they took his advice, and when they had called together the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word again. Lord, we are trusting again, even by the fact that we've gathered, even by the fact that we've opened up our Bibles, even by the fact that we have read and listened to the Scripture, Lord, that your word is profitable. And so 
we pray that you would do what you say you will do. You will teach and instruct and rebuke and admonish your people this morning by your word. And Lord, that you would be in the midst of our reflection and your spirit would bear witness to the reality of the gospel just as you say you do in this passage. Thank you, Lord. We trust you for these things. If it would be so, it will be because you have done it. We pray this in your name. Amen. In the church today, we give a great deal of effort right, to be interesting, to be relevant, to, to make an impact. All right? Nobody wants to be about something, especially week after week and day after day, that's irrelevant and unimportant. Certainly, no one could argue that the events of Acts are uninteresting or irrelevant or didn't make an impact, right? Like these are the very definition of the things that are interesting, relevant, and made a global impact to this day. It's turned the world upside down. That's the story that we're reading, a story of God upending the world, setting it right by his gospel. But the question that I have this morning is I I read this passage and uh, really wrestled over it, struggled with this passage. The question that I have this morning is what stands at the root of the movement? What stands at the root of the compelling mission of the church? Or another way to put it, what compels this mission of the church? This morning I want to offer a, a few observations. The first is the mission of the church is a message. The mission of the church is a message. Look at verses 12 through 16. Now, in verses 12 through 16, there's a lot of action, right? A lot of things taking place. It reminds me of the beginning of the book of Mark. Action-packed, dramatic movement. This is true in Acts. It's true in Jesus' own ministry. In verse 14, though, it says, More than ever, believers were added to the Lord multitudes of both men and women. There were believers being added to their number right in the midst of all this activity, right? And so a key question that I have in my mind is how were they added? What's taking place? What does it mean that they were believers? Was it because the disciples were good people? Was it because the church was a good community? Was it because of powerful miracles and signs? What is it? Why were the disciples released from the prison? Just just a, a few verses later. What is it that is said to them there when they are released by the angel? What's the word that the angel has for the apostles as leaders of the church to go and continue this work that others would believe and that the church would continue on in its mission. Look at Acts 5.20. In Acts 5.20 it says, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. I think that's the answer. 
I think that's the answer to the question of how the church is growing and increasing, how more believers are coming. They're called believers because they were believing in a word that was spoken. The mission of the church is a message in the midst of all of the works and the deeds and the morality and the character and the joy and the fellowship of the people, the mission itself is a message. The business of the church is to speak words, specific good words, words that we call the good news or the gospel. The upright character, the beautiful community, the miraculous authority is simply to bring affirmation to the message that they proclaim and to bear witness to the fact that the message has taken root in their midst. So the mission of the church is not merely undirected, zealous activity, but rather it's a clear and compelling message. Pastor Martin Lloyd-Jones once said, the church spread as the result of preaching, period. And this is true. This is what Jesus told the disciples to do, to go and bear witness. This is what the Holy Spirit empowered them to do, to go into the streets and bear witness. And when the witness is imprisoned, the Lord sends an angel to send them back into the streets to what? Bear witness. The message of God is the mission of the church. Of late, uh, I've observed an interesting phrase. I think it can be a helpful phrase, but at times it can also be a bit distracting. Of late, I've heard that it is our job to live the gospel. It's our job to live the gospel. And certainly it is the case that we are to live in the light of the gospel. It's true that we are to exhibit the fruit of the gospel. But to live the gospel is not the central mission of the church. We believe the gospel. Having believed the gospel, we are transformed by the power of the gospel at work in us. And then we are to proclaim the gospel in the congregation and in the community. It's Jesus who has lived the gospel. And I think that's really important for us, that there's nothing that we can do. There's nothing that we can live. There's nothing that we can perform that is sufficient and substantial to light the world on fire. You see, we are a people who, who bear witness to a reality, a message, a historical truth that is substantial, and that is changing us. In fact, it set us on fire. But we ourselves are not the coal. We ourselves are not the gospel. We live in the light of it, transformed by it, in order to proclaim it. So the, mess, the mission of the church is a message, and the accomplishment of that mission, by definition, requires the preaching of the message. Let me just pause there for a second and ask you this question. Are you on the mission of the church? Are you a participant in the life of the mission of the church? Or is your association with the church something more like, I go to church to be transformed or encouraged or helped or to learn how to live out the fruit of the gospel? But the fact is the church has a mission. It's a mission that we have been sent on, and that mission requires the proclamation of the gospel. 
And just to be extremely clear, I am not the church. Yes, I proclaim the gospel, but I join with the church in our mission together. In many ways, my proclamation of the gospel is is one of the least sufficient means of our proclamation in this community. Because my proclamation of the gospel is to you, many of whom already believe. It's the church in the community proclaiming the gospel. It's the church in the places where the people are as we proclaim the gospel in which the mission takes place. So the the mission of the church is a message. It's a message that's on the lips of the people of the church. And here's how we know that. In verses 17 through 21, I think one of the things that rises up is that the message is a message that is entrusted by God to His church. Now, this is an amazing story. Verses 17 through 21, it's, it's action-packed, it's dramatic, it's unexpected, right? By everyone in the passage, you don't like see Peter sitting there going, yeah, I'm sure an angel's going to come. You know, we're not going to have to deal with those. Guys, we're probably going to wind up in the temple sometime later this afternoon. It's unexpected. In the passage, it says the high priest rises up and he was filled with jealousy, the passage says. It's it's literally he became hot and zealous. So we have zeal in the passage, right? We have a, a sort of burning heat in the passage. An angel breaks into the prison and escorts the apostles out and commissions them again to preach the gospel in the most public of places, which is the temple. Now, it might be too soft to say that the message is entrusted by God. I think that's too soft of a a commissioning for the church. It seems that God is doing more than giving the message to the apostles and then casually sitting back to see what happens. I'm going to entrust it to you and see what you, the apostles and the church can do with this gospel message of mine. What we see is God deliberately and powerfully moving the message forward. We have the disciples gathered together in an upper room, praying together, and the Holy Spirit comes and commissions them into the streets. We have the apostles being faithful in those places and then cooped up in a prison. And an angel comes and says, get out in the streets. We have God interrupting the story over and over again, doing more than entrusting the message to the church. He is actively participating as a messenger himself. Jesus told the disciples in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, the first great commission in Acts, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Friends, that is not the statement of somebody who simply entrusts and hopes it would happen. He says, this is what you're going to be. Because I'm going to more than send you there. I'm going to pick you up. I'm going to put you there. We see he does that with Philip in just a little couple chapters. God is active in the proclamation mission. And he is particularly so by his spirit. This passage is part of the ongoing fulfillment of Jesus' promise. The Holy Spirit is continuing to entrust and empower the preaching of the gospel. Let me pause for another moment. 
Some of you, when I began to talk about your proclamation of the gospel, you got nervous. You're like, I'm not sure how to do that. I'm not very good at that. I don't know the words. Those are the same things that apostles say before the Spirit gives them the words that Jesus promised. You see, our business is not just one of preparation. Our business as proclaimers is one of belief. Do you believe that the Holy Spirit of God is proclaiming the gospel in your midst? Do you believe that if you would open up your mouth to that friend, that co-worker, that person that you've been jogging with or hanging out with on the weekends, do you believe that the Holy Spirit would empower and proclaim to their hearts things that your words can't even say, though you'll try? But as you say those words, they resonate with what the Spirit is going, working in their hearts so that the proclamation of the gospel takes root. Do you believe that? You see, the proclamation of the gospel is more than taking an evangelism training class. Rather, the proclamation of the gospel is prepared for as we pray and we say, Lord, God, help my unbelief that you'll be about the mission. I wonder what would happen if we had a church filled with people this week who begged God to help them to believe that he has an interest in saving the people in this county. What, what if that was our evangelistic task this week? The angel affirms the calling upon the lives of the apostles in verse 20. The angel says, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. Is that the words of a messenger who thinks that they're going alone? Or is that the words of a messenger from the Lord who's sending them with the commission and power and authority of the Lord himself? In Acts chapter 3, verse 15, the apostles bear this witness. You killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. This statement about the author of life isn't just a simple statement that Jesus is a creator. It's a statement that Jesus is a redeemer of a new creation. That, that Jesus is still at work bringing about a life and their witnesses now commissioned again to bear witness to this life, redeeming the old and making it new. This is the commission that the apostles receive again from the messenger, bear witness to this life. Now, I love the way that the scriptures speak with one voice and often they use the same words written by different people. Here's one for you to write in your margin here. 1 Thessalonians 2, 2 through 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 2 through 4. It says this. But though we had already suffered, this is the Apostle Paul speaking, who was still an enemy of the gospel at the time that Acts chapter 5 was written, let's be clear. But by the time we get to 1 Thessalonians, it says, But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God. Do you hear where it is? Boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. I love that. He goes out of his way 
Boldness in God to declare the gospel. No, the gospel of God. It's his message. He's going to see to it that it goes out, and it's effective where he would have it be effective. He continues, For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. Not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. God has entrusted it to us. We've been approved by Him for that task, even though the world would deride us and call our gospel something less or an offense. We've been entrusted, and so we speak. It's a, I love the way. Approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. They basically say the same thing to the rulers in our passage in Acts chapter 5. God sent us, we have to go. Is that true of the church this morning? You have been sent. Do you have a sense, a conviction, a belief, faith, trust in the Lord's own word that you have to go? The wind that blows in the church, breathing life and heat onto the fire, is the fact that we are a sent people. The Holy Spirit is sending us into the streets. The very angels of God are sending us into the public places. Let's continue to look at the passage in the second half of verse 21 to verse 32. We see that the command to preach the message supersedes every other authority. Now, this is one that we kind of like. We like it because we're just a little bit rebellious at heart, and this feels like a little bit of rebellion, a little bit of youthful zeal on the apostles' part. Can't obey you. Have to obey God, right? Well, look at the story. The high priest and the elder, the leaders are shocked, not only to discover that the apostles are missing, but to discover them preaching in the temple that is a direct opposition to their own decree. Remember in, in verse 7, it says that they rose up, it wasn't just that they gave a simple instruction. They are rising up. He's, they're trying to assert their authority in jealousy and zeal over the apostles and what would be on their lips. Then in Acts chapter 5, verse 28, it says that those same leaders says, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. In direct opposition to our authority, they could say. The high priest brings out the reality that the apostles had rejected the authority of the religious people. And then in verse 29, Peter stands up and says, the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than man. Now, this verse been, has been twisted beyond recognition at various times and places in the church. This is not the disciples saying that they have to follow some unseen inner leading that's inside of them, even in opposition to established governmental authority. That's not what this is. This isn't the apostles saying, I just feel like I'm supposed to do this, so I have to obey God. Who cares what logic or reason or even the scriptures or governmental authorities would say? No. This is disciples declaring that they've seen Jesus. They saw him in the flesh, and Jesus said words, and his words came in the form of a commission, and that commission was to be his witnesses. They have received a recorded testimony regarding a commission that is extended to all the disciples of the church. It becomes our mission. They are at liberty 
literally not in prison for one reason. He doesn't say, hey, I see how much you've suffered and it's getting ridiculous. So I'm going to let you out. So go home. Enjoy some time with your family. I know they're coming. They're going to come for you, but just enjoy your liberty for a little while. They are at liberty literally for one reason, and that is that they would bear witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ, that they would preach the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus for the forgiveness and repentance among the people. I wonder, why am I at liberty? Why am I alive? Why do we have the great freedoms that we have right where we live? Is it perhaps that we would proclaim? I'll tell you, one of the, one of the places where that became very real to me is I have a, a United States passport. I had, I had no idea the gold that I have in my hand with a United States passport. I can go almost anywhere on the planet, and all they say is, what are you doing here? I'm like, I'm trying to make some friends, like with the gospel and stuff. And they let me in. It's crazy. And then I meet people, and they they can't go and visit really much of anywhere. And I wonder, why do I have that freedom? Why am I at liberty in that way? Is it perhaps that we have been set at liberty, like the apostles literally set out of prison for one reason, go into the temple and proclaim the good news? I'm going to share this story very briefly. I I think it could divert us, but it is speaking to the cultural moment that we are in. Recently in Canada, I was listening to World Magazine earlier this week, um, and they reported that in Canada, they've been exploring and passing some laws that restrict the rights of Christian schools to be governed by the explicit words of the Scriptures. So literally, if they say some of the words that are explicitly written in the Scriptures, they're being told to write those out of their policies in some pretty amazing fashions. One of those schools is Calvin Christian. It's in Colhurst, Alberta. The government has mandated the removal of the words male and female in their school bullying policy. So in response, one of the individuals declared this, if it comes down to a choice between Minister Egan, who says, I cannot use the words male and female in my policy, or Jesus Christ, who said from the beginning of creation, he made them male and female, if we need to line up with Mr. Egan or with Jesus Christ, the choice is very clear. Now, you have to understand in that context, the, the, the liberty of that school to be a school is at risk. But they see their liberty to be a school at present is to bear witness to the truth of Jesus Christ in the whole of the Scriptures. And if we cease to understand who we are as created beings, receiving our identity from a Creator, we lose our gospel. As we're now something that the Scriptures don't really get, we get ourselves a little bit better, so certainly the God of those Scriptures would have no idea how to redeem us from our own brokenness, our own sin and rebellion against Him, every single one of us. We have to ask ourselves, in the times in which we live, has Jesus spoken a word with authority? Has revealed to us who we are and our need for Him? Has He worked redemption on behalf of sinners? Has He called everyone in all places and in all walks of life to repentance and belief in 
the gospel and as he sent us to preach the good news, the, the whole story of the scriptures from beginning to end. You're going to have to ask this probably increasingly in the cultural moment in which we live. But let me tell you why I was tempted not to share that implication, I think, of this passage. I wonder if outside authorities are really our problem. Is that why you haven't shared the gospel with someone that you know you should have asked them? Maybe you should have even, you were hesitant to ask them to Christianity explore it as an opportunity even recently. Was it because of government coercion? I wonder if that's really our problem. I look at the church and I wonder if our greater problem, even in the present cultural moment, even in years to come, is not external authorities, but internal priorities and internal fears. Does the command to preach the gospel supersede every priority in our lives together as a church? Does it look like functionally our households have been sent with good news? Above every authority and above every priority. Now let's continue together. In verses 30 and 30. In verse 30, it says, The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. And he begins to bear witness to this gospel. God exalted him at the right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. A message which the witnesses proclaim. What is this message? What's the substance of the good news? The apostles have been compelled by God Himself to set a fire in the city of Jerusalem and to the ends of the earth. Friends, if this morning is a call to be gospel proclaimers, one of the things that we could do is pay attention to the essential, substantial reality of what that gospel is that we proclaim. Right? What is the essence of of that gospel. And we have it so clearly on display in these verses. One of the things that I do in my Bible is when I find a nice compact version of the gospel like this one, and we've seen about three or four of them so far in the book of Acts, we're only on chapter five, I put a cross on the side or three dots to represent the three nails. And I put it in red so that I can remember to go to that passage and remember the gospel clearly proclaimed there. I would encourage you to do something similar. In Acts chapter 3, verses 13 through 15, we have another example of this compact proclamation of the gospel. There it says this, The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified His servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. Do you hear it? We are witnesses to the fact of the death of Jesus Christ. We are witnesses to the reality of our corporate rebellion against our God and our unbelief. We are witnesses to the fact that God raised him from the dead, that he, what he accomplished on the cross actually worked for his life and for the life of all who would call on him in faith for the forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to the fact that we are witnesses. 
We are witnesses to the fact that we have been sent by Jesus. I want to walk through those steps very quickly. The first thing that we see in our passage in verse 30, the God of our fathers raised Jesus. God raised Jesus. This is why the angel speaks of this life. The life we've received is nothing less than the life of Jesus. Jesus is the first to take up the inheritance of life that he's promised to all who's place their faith in him. God raised Jesus. That is essential to gospel proclamation. And the gospel proclamation can be as simple as what are your thoughts about Easter and the celebration that the church does there? Would you be interested in joining my church and seeing how we believe in this truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ? I would love to share that with you. Whatever power is at work in Jesus to raise him from the dead, whatever authority he has is the authority and power that he declares that our sins are forgiven and that we have eternal life, and it's with that same authority and power that we are sent to proclaim the news of that forgiveness and that repentance. That gospel, that'll burn. That's substantial. That's true enough to set a fire. The second thing that we see that's essential to this gospel, verse 31, God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior. God exalted Jesus. The fuel that burns is not only abundant, it's substantial. When we talk about Jesus, we're not just talking about somebody who did something. We're talking about God himself who is reigning this moment on the throne of heaven. And he is establishing a kingdom for all of the people who would place their faith in him. That's the leader and Savior that we're talking about. Jesus is not only life, He's, as other translations say, He's the Prince of Heaven. The mission given to the church is about the exalted Christ. That's substantial. That's that's real. That'll burn for a long time. The third thing that's essential to the Gospel is Jesus gives repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Look how it continues. God exalted him at the right hand as leader and savior in verse 31. It continues to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Now the apostles in this passage, they're, they're speaking in Jerusalem just after the preaching of the gospel in the Jewish temple that they had been released to. And the apostles now declare that the hope of Israel is exclusively in the repentance and forgiveness that is granted through Jesus alone. The only hope is in Jesus. Now, the same news is extended later to the Gentiles in Acts. And I love the way it picks up on that same language in Acts chapter 11, verse 18. Another good passage to write in your margin next to this one so you don't get too thrown off by the words to Israel. In, verse, in, chapter, in Acts chapter eleven eighteen, 18, it says, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. You hear that? The gospel of Jesus Christ that was first to the Jews is brought and extended in power also to the Gentiles that all of the earth would hear and receive this gospel. This is where the heat and abundance begins to catch fire in our own chests because we have repentance and forgiveness 
of sins. And that begins to burn like a fire, a substantial fuel that, that fuels our proclamation. Consider the, the way that, that Jesus says those who have been forgiven much love much, right? Do you know that you've been forgiven? There's a reason why we do the prayer of confession every single week. It's a reminder to love much. Because as we explore the depth of our depravity, we realize just how great of a Savior we have. And from that place, friends, the prayer of confession is a place that compels us to gospel proclamation. If He could save me, the me that comes to prayer of confession every week, if He can save me, oh, surely He can save my coworkers. No problem. No problem. Every guilt, every shamed is atoned for in the cross of Christ. And then the fourth central reality about the gospel is verse 32. Don't miss it. We skip it all the time. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey Him. It says in verses 33 through 42 that the leaders were enraged. The fire of their zeal is burning hot. And then, while still unbelieving, one who is yet wise in their midst stands up. So Gamaliel explains what I shared earlier. Sure, there are those who rise up in great burning zeal for a little while. The examples that he gave in that, Patius, uh, in that passage, Thutis and Judas the Galilean. But there's no substance to them. But if it's of God, if God has sent them, and God is the fuel that burns in them, you won't be able to overthrow them. Jesus sent the disciples to be witnesses. The Holy Spirit empowered them to be His witnesses. The angel freed them to be His witnesses. And now they go into public and private places, teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. Look at verse 32. Every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. I hope two things this morning. Two very simple things. I hope that you see that we, Christ Church, along with the other churches that trust in the gospel in this county, are a people who have been sent. Do you believe that? If you're like, yeah, technically I believe that. I'm glad you do. Confess it this morning. And cry out to God, help my unbelief. And secondly, let us remember the abundant and substantial reality of the gospel. That it, His grace is actually sufficient for the work of the proclamation of the gospel. That you won't save anybody. I promise you. I promise you. If you, if you actually take the first part that you've been sent into your community to preach the gospel, I promise you, you won't save a soul. God will. Wrestle with that. Wrestle with that in prayer. I was struggling as how to wrap this up, and I need to. I was struggling with, like, do I give application specific ways that you can go about that proclamation? And, and there are lots of things. I, I will at least mention one. I've never been turned down 
by anyone, no matter how far away they are from Christ or antagonistic they are toward the gospel and the things of the word. I've never been turned down by anyone when I've asked them, would you be interested in reading the Bible sometime with me? I've just never been turned down. Now, I'm not saying that we read the Bible very many times. I'm not saying it went anywhere. But we read. It's one thing you can do. Hey, you know I believe in this crazy old book. Would you be interested in just like reading it with me so you can know why I'm so weird? You know? But I'll be honest, I'm not sure what it is for you. I'm not sure how you would go about that proclamation. I do know you'll probably go with other people. You'll need to do it together. And so I want to commission you to go to community groups. I want you to explore there. How can we be obedient and believing in the reality that we are a sent people together? I send you with that one question this week. How can we walk as a people who believe we have been sent and empowered with substantial gospel? Heavenly Father, it would be a mighty thing, a a glorious thing that would compel our worship and praise of Your name if we would feel the burn of being sent. That we would come to believe the reason why we are set at liberty. I pray that the first result of this morning's message would be worship. A people who worship You because we see You at work in our midst. But I pray that worship would also be the result of this message, of this Scripture's work in our hearts, because one who was previously an enemy of Your grace and Your cross gathers with us for worship because they are saved. Lord, that would be an increase in worship because there is another heart who believes, but that would be an increase in our worship because we saw a miracle take place because everyone who believes is a miracle of God. Lord, we pray that You would work this miracle in our midst in the coming days for Your glory in this community and for the encouragement of Your church, Your worship, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.